Women Kick-Ass and welcome. Before we begin tonight, I'd like to invite everyone to take a moment to acknowledge the Wandri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, who are the continued custodians of the land on which all of our popular centres and where we need to mark the town, the city now known as Nolan. We pay respect to the Wandri elders, past, present, and all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples across this continent. In First Nations society, community and kinship are deeply embedded in many formal and informal ways. The first level of kinship is the Moiti system. Moiti means heart in Latin. To First Nations people, it means everything. The people, the air, the waterways, the geographic features, it's split into parts, and each part is a mirror image of the other, and the mirror images must come together. Children inherit their melody from their mother or their father's side of the family, and anyone, anywhere in the world, who shares the same melody is their brother or sister, whether they are related by blood or not. People with the same melody are obliged to support each other, and when help or support is provided, it must be paid back. A First Nations person could arrive in a new town, knock on the door of a stranger, or ask for a place to stay and something to eat. If that person shares their melody, they're obliged to provide it and expect it will be provided in return, sometime in the future. In First Nations language, there is no word for please or thank you. Even after this bony gift, it is support is assumed and expected to the Maori system. At market length, community is one of our core values. This is because meaningful communities can be a vital source of support, strength, inclusion, and well-being. And it's our relationship with community that brings true meaning to what we do, and that's what gets us out of bed every morning. Tonight in Nam, we're thrilled to be hosting two very important friends from our community, Pedro and Leo, all the way from Columbus. We've been working with Pedro and Leo since 2016, um, and it's a relationship that we hold very close to our hearts. We've learned so much from Pedro and Leo over the years, and um, our business skills and values feel very aligned. So we're very excited to have them here tonight. We're going to hand the microphone to them, but first of all, we're just going to give you some quick updates from across the business. The first thing we wanted to share with you tonight is our new packaging, um, which is going to be rolling out in the shops from the week commencing the 20, uh, week commencing the 18th of December, which is today. This is the end of a two-year journey that we've been on, um, working very closely with Susie, um, with Nick, and with Jason and myself. We've been doing lots of tasting and testing of different packaging solutions, um, and we've landed on this new packaging solution. Um, we Move to the Biotra bags that um, we have currently in our shops in 2018. Um, they were a big change from our foil line bags um, that we had for about nine years at Market Lane. And they were really exciting at the time because they were partially biodegradable. Um, these bags are another huge step forward because they're curved fiber recyclable, so they can be put straight into paper recycling um, or co-mingled recycling um, in, in people's homes. So instead of people needing to bring them back to the shops and to be disposed of responsibly, they can go straight into recycling. So we're really excited about them. We'll be sending a lot more information about them to the shops and uh, via email in the coming weeks so you can get your head around them. We'll also send some bags for you to be able to um, see um, physically in your spaces as well. Um, the biggest changes is there's no valve on the back, there's no tin tie, so we'll have some different ways of sealing the bags after they've been ground in the shop, so there's some tin ties that can be applied and if they're grinding them. But we're really excited about it. It means that there'll be literally hundreds of thousands of bags being saved from landfill and hopefully being recycled. 
Yeah, I'm really excited about this. I mean, you, you probably all know we're, we're trying to reduce our single-use footprint. Um, and obviously with cups, it's a bit of a challenge. Um, with bags, the technology keeps changing. So like Susie said, this is you know our next coffee bag. We're always looking to improve and, uh, and do better. We're limited by the infrastructure we have with the councils. And honestly, it's, it's a bit tough. But, but these bags are completely recyclable. It's really easy for everyone to do. And the coffee tastes great. And we spent a lot of time tasting and um, checking and making sure the coffee would last really well and still be vibrant and fresh uh, for our customers. So, yeah, it's a, it's a really um, big step forward, a really good step forward for us. There's a couple of other small updates. We did a, um, you probably remember we did a little survey asking you if you had any input into the color of the next tote bag. Um, I know a lot of you obviously love the tote bags, and this is the, the new two we have unveiling the big uh, drum roll. We have uh, Skyblue, no. Um, <coughs> we haven't named it. We haven't named it. Dusty Sky, Combi, Combi Van Blue, and uh, chocolate, chocolate Brown. Yeah. Um, perfect colours for summer. So. We released in end of January. Yeah. And for those of you who have been around for a couple of years, you know that we do awards at our Christmas parties, and we've got um, a few that are close to our heart, and um, we're excited to unveil a, a new one today. <laughs> this is uh, the first year for the inaugural Sam King Bringing the Vibes Award. <laughs> so for those of you who worked with Sam, um, he still is, I guess, a, a star and, and brought a lot of energy and uh, excitement and uh, enthusiasm to his work. And this award is uh, in honour of him and his <laughs> service to Michael um, there's a couple of bits of merch that we want to show you as well. Um, along with the new bag release, we're going to um, start retailing these uh, bean canisters at Fellow Atmos. They're 700ml containers. They're perfect for one bag of coffee, so 250 gram bag. They create a vacuum seal in them, so once you you do this sort of thing and you pump the air out of the out of the container. Yeah, I've been using one at home for a while. I think they're great. Um, so if people are worried about freshness or keeping their coffee in perfect condition, they can... You know, buy a bag, take it home, drop it into the container, and keep it fresh for um, as long as they like. This is a spoon. Um, <laughs> not just any spoon. This is a um, branded Markeling coffee um, <laughs> cupping spoon. Um, we had cupping spoons a few years ago, um, but these ones are ours, new. So uh, Pedro has a presentation, and... Um, we're going to do a little Q&A afterwards. So if you have any questions during the presentation, please save them up for the end. And um, please give a big round of applause for Pedro and Leo. All the way from the bottom. Hi, guys. Uh, my name is Pedro. I come uh, from Colombia with uh, Leo. Uh, we both work in, in Pergamino. Um, it's a real big honor to be here. Not only you guys live very, very far away. <laughs> it took us it took us a better the better part of two days to, to get here, but it was definitely worth it. It's just uh, uh we've been here for only a day and a half but we've learned so much, we've seen so much and it's been it's been it's been really great. Um we've been working with, with MCM and Market Lane for now almost eight years. Um and more than anything I can say that you're probably the friendliest, kindest people that we've worked with in the whole industry, in an industry that is known for friendliness and kindness. So that is uh, saying a lot. We've really enjoyed 
um, our time um, working with you guys and developing programs together. So it's a, it's kind of a culmination of, of many years of work to, to be here and um, share it this way today with you. And we're having some events with, with other roasters uh, here in Melbourne and in Sydney and Canberra, which we also have the, the honor to work with through, through MCM. So I'm really happy to be here. Um, I hope that the Q&A is hopefully bigger than the presentation. I'm going to try to that's going to make fun of me because I, I'm usually not very concise in what I say, but I'm going to try to be as concise as possible so we can leave it more towards what you guys are more interested in, in, in learning. Um, I know that some of you have a lot of experience in coffee. Some of you might be new or newish to, to coffee. So just be sure to ask whatever you might think that's interesting in terms of Colombia, because I know it's a world apart, even if we both are in the same industry. We are very far away and the realities on the ground are very, very different. So. Whatever you guys want to ask us, um, culture, coffee, processing, anything is, is super uh, welcome. Um, <clears throat> so first, a little bit um, where we come from. We are a family uh, company. We're still family owned. Uh, my father started, we started actually in the production side of the industry. Um, my father had a full time job in the city, started initially with a small uh, coffee plantation about two hours away from Medellin. Initially, as a as as a discovered hobby of his, that he found an old abandoned plantation in a, in a small parcel of land he had purchased, and very soon became the great passion of his life, and, and dedicated the better part of the last 40 years to to coffee. Um, for the first 30 years of those 40 years, we were like any other farmer in Colombia. Although we were larger in terms of the amount of coffee that we produced, we would sell coffee the same way that every coffee farmer in Colombia sells their coffee, which is at whatever price the daily rate goes, uh, the price of coffee in Colombia is set daily. I still remember when back in the day when you, people watched TV, you would watch the news in, in the afternoon and they would come up with the price of coffee of the day. So every day our exchange rate changes and the C market, which is the main market for coffee, changes. So every day uh, we would get a new price for coffee. And that's the way we would sell coffee. We'd go to town, we would sell it to whoever was paying a little bit more than the neighbor. And we would just sell it as anonymous Colombian coffee to be blended into uh, big commodity exports. And I'll go into that a little bit further. Um, but just to give you some perspective on what I'm talking about, this is the price of the sea market for the past 40 years. So you see that except for four little very pointy moments, the price of coffee has tended to be on the lower side of the of the scale. Just to give you perspective, if you put inflation here it's a curve like that so if the price of the 1970s which was you know about a dollar let's say a dollar to make it simple if you put that into today's money it would be five dollars a pound so if you whatever was getting with with coffee was getting purchased that in 1970 it should be around five dollars a pound today for the for the green this is i'm talking about green coffee right um the market right now it's at a dollar sixty a dollar seventy I'm talking about commercial commodity grade coffee not not specialty so if you think about it we're, we're the market is buying coffee at a much lower real price than what it was getting purchased at in nineteen seventy just to give you a kind of a perspective of of what goes on in the normal market so all of us in the growing world we're hoping and praying for these peaks right because those are the those are the moments of the decade where you actually 
your farm might turn a profit and you might you might um, 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 have a profitable business. The rest is just struggling to go by. And for a larger farm, um, you have resources in banks to finance the bad years, etc. But for small producers, those low points mean not having enough to invest in your family, in your home, in food. So it's a, it's a matter of survival many times in terms of the volatility of coffee. I always, when we, uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about our roasting and, and our retail, but we're, we're talking with our, our, the, our people that are coming into our team to help them understand a little bit what this volatility means. It's like if we would tell you guys at Market Lane, you know, the price of a cappuccino tomorrow is going to be not dictated by you, but by a market, right? And it's going to go down and up every single day. And the the and the and uh, how much you charge for that croissant is going to change every single day. Nobody would invest in a coffee shop. They don't have a control at what price they can sell, you know, a cup of coffee. That's the reality of a coffee farmer all throughout the world. Somebody else dictating at what price they can sell that coffee. So it's very, um, it creates a very unsustainable structure. Um, God, I got ahead of myself and a lot of what I said is here. But um, yeah, that, I just said that. So let me just move forward. Um, so in a way, a lot of the Colombian coffee is sold um, as what people call Excelsior Supremo, which is your commodity grade export Colombian coffee. And that is really designed to perpetuate anonymity, right? Because it's just simplifying a very complex product into something as simple as Colombian Excelsior, right? So you have 500,000 families that produce coffee in Colombia, and they just got wrapped into a name called Excelsior. What does that do? That that disempowers? No, that, that's the word I'm looking for. Takes power away from the producer in order to differentiate their coffee, in order to charge what they should charge for their coffee to really get a value for the work that they that they're that they're doing. Um, so if producers can't compete in quality because their coffee is just getting blended in into big you know piles of Excelso, the only way they can compete is with productivity, right? Trying to produce more in order to 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 make ends meet. And what happens when producers produce more? The market price goes down. So in many ways, the commodity market is designed to push the price of coffee as low as possible, just so producers have to produce more in order to be able to make ends meet. And the more they produce, the lower the price they, 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 they create. So it's a vicious circle. The commodity market creates a vicious circle of sustainability. I'm talking about economic sustainability, but we think that if you talk about sustainability from different perspectives, they all comes down to economic sustainability at first. Because if you don't have economic sustainability, it's very hard to have um, uh, environmental sustainability and social sustainability. So um, the structure of how it works in terms of the commodity market is really perverse if you think about it this way. Um, so when you think about, okay, that's the reality of commodity, how... And we all work in specialty, but I want to put into perspective how how big is specialty in Colombia. There's no real data that comes out of the government saying this amount of coffee is exported as specialty, right? It's but we do a very good calculation that we think about one percent of the coffee that's exported from Colombia every year is actually exported as specialty. 
what's our definition of specialty? Not certified rainforest or not certified fur trade. A lot of fur trade coffees actually should not be considered specialty because it's not, in our definition, um, high quality in terms of actual objective sensory quality measured in the cupping standards that we normally have and hopefully scoring above um, 80. A lot of people use 80 points. We use normally 82 or 83 points to, to, to the baseline for specialty. But most important, to have traceability exactly to the communities where it's grown. So recognition to those communities of where it's grown, hopefully to the exact producer, but at least to the communities, not just Wheela Regional. Wheela has 50,000, no, more than 50, 60,000 families that grow coffee. If you say Wheela, you're not saying much, right? It's like saying, you know, South Australia is huge or, or Victoria is huge, right? Um, Victoria, I'm not making a mistake there, right? Victoria's a state. <laughs> um, and most importantly, that it's paid at a significant premium. So it's actually paid not a couple of cents more, right? It's actually paid at a premium that recognizes that quality and that traceability. So we're talking about 1%. That's very little. I don't have the information from, you know, Central America or, or Brazil or, 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 or East Africa that we're talking more about Colombia here, but it's very, very little, very little. So the other 99%, they're struggling to just sell their coffee as, as Excelso, as Supremo, as just exported Colombian, Colombian um, coffee. Um, and to give you a perspective how the Colombian structure works, um, we have 500,000 families that produce coffee. Um, that's a lot of people. So basically one out of every three rural jobs in Colombia are tied to coffee, either directly or, or indirectly. So people that work around the industry. One out of, one out of three in rural Colombia. So coffee is very important in Colombia, not only for our rural economy, but also for our, our, our culture. Our culture is very much tied to coffee. The way the traditions that we have in our towns, the way we dress in our towns, everything that you and most of our towns are in the high mountains and most of the high mountains produce coffee. So a lot of our rural culture is tied to 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 um, coffee. And if you want to get a little bit, this is a lot of numbers. So I don't want to mess anybody up. But if you that the average size of a Colombian coffee farmer is about one hectare. So being optimistic, one hectare can produce about 20 bags of green coffee, 70 kilo green coffee bags, uh, which is the normal standard how you measure coffee for export. That is about $5,200 a year in income. If we're being super optimistic, you would give a 50% gross margin. Um, so that would leave about a $7 a day income. That's up. For, for a family of, you know, three or, 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 or four. That is less than, than the minimum wage that you have in Colombia in general. So, and that's, and this is a very optimistic scenario because you have a lot of producers that produce a lot less than, 10, than 20 bags and you have a lot of producers that the margin, when the market's down, it's a lot less than 50% gross margin. So, really coffee has become, uh, commodity coffee has become a matter of just the economy of survival. And it's the economy of where it can be produced for cheaper because labor is cheaper or the conditions to grow it is cheaper. But 
only specialties really working to solve the roots of this of this of this problem. So um, it's important for us that that we are working more in the specialty business understand why specialty is so important for the industry because it's not only about you know the impact that we have in the community that we serve amazing coffees to and etc. But it's the impact that we have in the communities where that coffee comes from. And even if we are one percent, we're still Back, we started working in specialty 10 years ago. That was 0.1%, right? So we're at least growing and we're becoming, you know, uh, a bigger industry. But we have a huge responsibility to really change the way that we perceive coffee, we connect with coffee. Um, and the reality is that coffee, at least in Colombia, is becoming not an option for younger people to look at, you know, following their their parents' steps and continuing with the, with the coffee tradition. A lot of a lot of younger uh, generation farmers are saying, "I prefer to go to a big city nearby and find a job as a barista as an industry in service and hospitality, and continue working in my family's farm, not basically being able to 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 do end meat." So, at the end, we believe that Colombia is going to be basically between i learned this phrase uh, the stone in a hard place right stone in a hard place so basically a very difficult situation because we're not able you know except unless we're able to produce really high quality coffee and and connect to this market because if you can produce really high quality coffee and you have no way to connect to the market of specialty then you're, you're as screwed as you were producing not really great coffee um we're getting into that for a second but it's the the future of a of of the entire culture of Colombia producing coffee is is in danger because we're not protecting it we're not really giving it the value that 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 it that it deserves um not to be too pessimistic but um so with that context which i know is it's pretty harsh but it's the reality that was the context that we faced when we started um, trying to change that reality um, 12 years ago. So when we started thinking of how to change that, we said, okay, you know, the first thing we need to do is to really connect to a market that will recognize the coffee that we produce. And originally, we thought that our coffee was the best coffee in the world because, you know, our mother said so. Because it was our, it was, <laughs> we didn't really know about standards for specialty. We didn't know how to cup. Um, we just had this idea that we should get recognition of where that coffee came from and 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 that we had really good coffee. <clears throat> but we started a very long and difficult road to really understand specialty um, and to really figure out from our farms which coffees we could actually produce at the standards that the specialty market was looking for and then actually gain that connection with importers and roasters throughout the world that we're able to recognize that and pay a, a significant premium that would help make our farms more sustainable in the long run. So this is Loma Verde, which is our our, our main farm um, and still the center of our of our operation in Santa Barbara. Santa Barbara is a region of of of, Colum of Antioquia. Antioquia is the state where we are. Medellin is the capital of that state. Um, but very soon we realized that the industry itself of export wasn't ready for specialty 10 years ago. So there were some people exporting specialty, but not a lot. Uh, and even today, what I'm telling you, 1% is still tiny. So we would go with our coffee to a big mill. So the mill, you, there's a wet mill, which is the, the, the way you process coffee at a farm level. 
which actually, I forget to mention that, but in Colombia is very different than other countries because you actually have individual farmers wet processing their coffee at the farm level. So in, for example, East Africa, in Ethiopia, and Kenya, you have these big mills where producers deliver cherry. In Central America, in some countries, you see that as well. Colombia, 90-something percent of producers actually process their own cherry. So they, they process their cherry, they ferment, they wash, they dry, and then they sell the parchment to the mills or the exporters. And then the dry mills is the actual uh, uh, companies or the, the factories that process that parchment, take that parchment off, we separate all the bad beans, all the vinegars and brokens and all the, the first and second defect coffees, and then export in hopefully very, very good looking um, green coffee um, to uh, roasters and importers throughout the world. So <clears throat> we realized that we, in order to export our own coffee, we had to invest in a dry mill. That was the first kind of big um, decision we had to make because big mills are not designed for specialty. You would take, we would take our parchment to a big mill and we said, okay, we need 20 bags of that, 10 bags of that. And they're like, what do you mean? It's coffee. It's like, you give me parchment, I give you green. Like it's, if it's clean cup and it's, you know, it's like, that's it. It, which a lot of the far, a lot of the mills didn't even give you your coffee back. They used just give you green coffee for exchange, in exchange of parchment. So we started our own mill designed for smaller lots, designed to be able to mill at the standards that we were understanding specialty required. Um, and that was uh, the, 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 the first big step that we took in order to export our own um, coffee. But very soon, um, we realized that the problem that we had as a large farm was the same problem that you know 500,000 producers had in Colombia with that incapacity to be able to connect to the market. So even if you had an amazing coffee, these are worlds apart, right? Australia is the world is the apart the, the the farthest away world apart. But still, if you look at a town in the middle of Colombia and you connect it to the you know biggest closest city in the U.S., for example, it's still you know worlds apart. Containers, you know, logistics. Uh, uh, payments. It's all very, you know, very complicated for a small producer to be able to do that connection. And Leo, who had actually had, um, Leo was from our exporter, was probably employee number one because I wasn't in the payroll back then. Um, he had experience with specialty in 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 Colombia um, in one of the first programs that that developed uh, microlots exported from Colombia, and he had a lot of friends uh, and people that he had known in the south of the country that were producing amazing coffee and had lost the programs that were that were supporting them. So we decided to start uh, an allied producer program initially in Insacauca, where the you guys have used a lot of the San Antonio, um, um, the Macizo Colombiano to the PDMA family, um, several different microlots. And it's a region in the south of the country. And we decided to start an allied producer program as a pilot there. And now the Allied Producer Program is really the heart and soul of our company because about 80% of the coffee that we export comes from that program. So in very simple ways, we just basically build programs around communities in different parts of Colombia, understand their coffee, separate their coffee into different quality levels, and connect those producers with roasters like Market Lane and roasters throughout the world that want to recognize that coffee, are willing to pay more for that coffee because it has a different quality 
and we go back and 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 buy this the coffee from the producers as parchment at a higher at a higher price so we work um individually with these small producers so we're not buying you know regional coffee from Kauka and then just tasting it and saying okay this is a little bit different we're building these lots lot by lot from every delivery that a producer uh uh delivers so we can cut through i was doing the math the other day of how many coffees we cut this year but i think uh we're about 10,000 to 15 to 12,000 lots, different day lots that we cup throughout the year to create um, community blends or micro lots that we end up um, exporting. So that's now what we're um, really the heart and soul of, of what we do. And we work with about 1,500 producers throughout um, Colombia. And our idea is, you know, zero, if we believe that the problem is anonymity and the kind of the vicious circle that that produces, we need to do the opposite. We need to recognize every single day lot that a producer delivers. We need to cut through all these day lots. A lot of these are 50 kilos, 40 kilos, 30 kilos. We get sometimes like coffee delivered in backpacks, right? If they're this small of a, of a lot, we'll cut through it and we'll decide what quality, what profile it has and how we're going to either blend it as a family lot, as a community lot, or as an individual producer um, uh, lot. But they're all fully traceable. Every lot that we export, we can go back and see how it was built from which producers and what uh, quality. Um, and the way that we differentiate our, our purchases is that we have a base price that's always above the market. So we never pay, uh, we, ne we never pay a market price. We always pay whatever we, the, the, the premium we can pay for our high quality blend, but it's still not micro lot. So for example, and this is something that we were talking with, with the team yesterday because it doesn't get enough recognition. A lot of the industry pays a lot of attention to micro lots. So a lot of the industry pays attention to whatever, you know, new micro lot, very exciting, new variety, et cetera, comes up. But a lot of, a lot of people don't understand the power that high quality blends have. So, you know, you might have a lot of, a lot of great micro lots, but if you look at, you know, a lot of the big chunk of what you guys are roasting are usually the blends, right? And you can take a decision whether those blends have an impact and have a certain quality, or if you are willing to buy, let's say, for example, regional coffee that have a, you know, a score lower and don't have a real impact on producers. And companies like Market Lane, they, since we've been working with you guys, you guys you always use really high quality blends for or blender lots for your roasted blends that have actually an impact and that impacts a lot more producers than even the micro lot program does and that's something that usually doesn't get a lot of recognition you go to some roasters that you find you know that have a really great micro lot program but then they're using you know excelsos and supremos for their blends um so i don't want to talk bad about anybody but i'm just saying that you know it's at, at the end the blends usually are not as sexy as the micro lots, but they have a huge impact because they have more volume and they can impact a lot more producers on the ground. Um, so all the all the uh, all the all the coffees that we purchase have a premium over the market. But then micro lots, we have a second premiums uh, event that we do twice a year when we finally know at what price that coffee is getting sold, at what exchange rate we got the money into because we buy in pesos and sell in dollars so we need to know that exchange rate in order to pay that second premium to the producers so two times a year 
Um, we go back to the communities that we work and we do a premium ceremony where we say, okay, you know, we purchased these coffees, these coffees enter our micro lots program. They got sold at an extra premium over the blends. And here's the money individually to each producer that participated into, into these lots. Um, and that goes directly to the producer. That doesn't go to an association or a co-op. That goes directly into the producer's um, pockets. Um, yeah, I just kind of talked a little bit about this. There's this idea that, you know, these regional coffees are our specialty. They're not. Like they're, they might cup better than, you know, your average Excelso or, 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 or export grade Colombian coffee. But if they're not traced to a community, if they are not, if a premium is not paid for them to the producer, they should not be considered uh, a specialty. They're still anonymous. They're still not having impact. And they're still not cupping what they should if you're really doing the job of going back to directly to the to the producers. Um, we also have we we've never focused on having a very big um, technical assistance program because that requires a lot of um, a lot of investment that has to come basically out of the actual producer because no matter what you say if you if you invest more money in this sort of programs they have to come from the money has to come from somewhere and the problem is is that a lot of people excuse kind of the fact that they're not paying a lot of premiums to saying oh no we have a technical assistance program for producers we always feel that the best technical assistance program is actually more money in producers pockets because a lot of the problems that producers have is not a lack of i mean the producers that we work with have been growing coffee for generations. They know what they're doing, right? They, we can, you know, we can share knowledge of stuff that we see in other regions, especially in processing. Now in specialty, there's a bunch of stuff that comes up that we can share and it's fun and it can change, you know, quality, et cetera. But these guys, most of the time, they need better money for the product, for the product that they're producing. And that's going to have huge impacts on 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 their farms more than any technical assistance program but we have been focusing more on what we call escuelas de campo which means basically like rural schools where we get a group together of the community and we start sharing with each other the knowledge that the community has so instead of us really coming in and saying you should do this you should do that we kind of create these schools where people and members of different communities within the region share what has worked what hasn't worked what problems they're having and we've seen that that is a lot cheaper to do, and it has a lot bigger impact on the on the people that 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 we are trying to to, to help out. Um, in Insa, we developed this uh, community biofactory. So there's we have a certified organic group in, in in Insa, but there's also a very big organic tradition in 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 Insa tied to um, more traditional um, indigenous practice that they have in this in this region. But a lot of the, let's say, more modern ideas about organic practices is a lot of time hard to do at a small scale farm. So we decided to, uh, to, to help organize a community biofactory with the help of two roasters from the U.S. that we work with. They helped us finance the start of this biofactory. And the idea is that we produce this biofactory that is actually managed by the community. Um, basic organic products that is, are produced at scale and then sold at cost to the producers. So the producers, by buying at cost, they're paying what it takes to re to do another production and to keep the cycle the cycle going. And this has been now going on for for two years. Um, 
you don't they don't have to be cert organic certified to buy from this facility a lot of producers that are not organic certified are still buying uh products for this because it's a lot cheaper than than chemical fertilization and it can um help them a lot it's a lot easier um we also have <laughs> call it our geisha for the people program because the thing is like geisha sometimes is kind of uh it's it's almost sometimes very concentrated in larger farms and a lot of the times in eventually very expensive coffee that not a lot of people get to enjoy and we have not nothing against you know larger farms selling geisha for high prices but we feel that geisha should be more available both to smaller producers that is harder for them to get the right seeds to be it's a variety that they haven't planted before to have the knowledge to, of how to plant it and then for actually, you know, have enough of this of this coffee that it can be sold at a high price that is sustainable to the producer, but not necessarily at a hundred dollars where it's only going to be, you know, used at a very special release or be drank in 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 a, in a pour over in a shop, but something that more people can have in their home and enjoy and have an impact across the community. So uh, we call it our Geisha for the People program. But the idea behind this is to um, uh, foment the production of geisha, especially in the insect community where they have a lot of altitude and we've already been uh, cupping some great geishas from there and try to get um, you know enough volume that we can pay a lot higher prices for producers, obviously top microlot prices, but at a level that we can promote it a lot heavier in with roasters throughout the world and not let it as to be a, a very exclusive small release, but actually something with more volume, again, that has more impact. So not one farm, but it has an impact on, in this case, uh, we have 60 farmers that are, are now planting geisha in, in, in incense that we hope to, to possibly impact. Um, and just briefly, kind of our final bridge. So we started roasting uh, 10 years ago, 11 years ago. Um, we also started uh, our, our, our cafes um, with our first cafe uh, 10 years ago. Now we're actually very similar in, in, in size to what you guys uh, are right now. We also, we also have uh, eight locations um, throughout Medellin uh, mostly. And for us, it's like the final bridge to connect the producers that we work with or our own farms with that final consumer in our backyard that unfortunately a lot of the Colombian, uh, great Colombian coffee gets, I mean, we love to export it and share it with the world, but it's very sad that we can't get to enjoy it back home. So most of the coffee that we drink back home is the sub-products, right? Everything that we don't export, um, we end up roasting and, and using it uh, back home. So it's very hard to find amazing coffee back home. And um, thankfully, it's been changing over the past 10 years, and we're getting, we're getting a lot more roasters and, and, and specialty cafes. Um, but it's been it's been a ride to learn about roasting and retailing because it's very different world from growing and, and exporting. Um, but once you're able to have a little bit of a foot in, in the entire chain, it's really marvelous to to be able to connect that world to the consumer and to their cafe. So this is just a couple of pictures of our shops. If you ever in if you ever in Medellin, you're more than welcome to visit. Um, Okay. Um, I think, thank you very much. Um, I think, yeah. I'm I hope sure that wasn't too dense. No, no, that was excellent. Yeah. Um, yeah. If anyone has uh, questions?
Thank you, that was amazing. Um, I'm just wondering how you find these really small producers of tiny farms, often in remote areas, for your allied producer program. Yeah, um, we were just actually talking extensively about that with, with Rafa. Um, because one of the main, the main factors here is we work with communities, not with individual farmers. So we, we work, we buy directly from individual farmers, but it's always throughout, through a community. So if, you know, we have a small farmer in a town where we don't have a community with, with which we work, it's very hard logistically to, to, to buy that coffee because if somebody comes and says, hey, I have 100 kilos of this really beautiful coffee, it's not like we can say, okay, FedEx it to us, right? Because the logistics of, of getting it, moving it in parchment to our mill, um, we need a certain volume to be able to do that and to have you know a lab in the town where we want to work, cupping through these coffees, etc. So <clears throat> we tend to build programs around communities and we tend to, what we've done is to identify communities that have a lot of potential for quality, but very importantly that they work together together because it's and we were talking about why INSA is such a special program it's because there's such a big sense of community in INSA that is it's almost easy to work there because you know there's a network of information and how it moves and how we can make do facilitate meetings and share what we're doing so we don't so we we develop programs around where we think that we can find quality but where we can find ways of connecting with that community and really creating roots in that community and the strongest and we've had programs that have been really strong like INSA um, <clears throat> um, like China Alta for example that you guys have also had um, for example Nariño which we also work has been super hard because it's been hard to work around a central community um, so we've been working there for for now almost 80 years but every year is a little bit like trying to start from scratch because we haven't been able to build that it's harder because of cultural reasons because of different kind of very idiosyncratic issues in Nariño but um it's a long response to a simple question but yeah we, we 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 tend to focus on communities where there's potential and then kind of focus on growing uh from there so there, we can work in thousands of towns across Colombia and we don't we work in six or seven towns not even regions, but towns and the communities around those towns. So it's very, this work is very specific in, in, in its regions. I hope okay. I, I yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, thank you also. That was amazing. I have a question about Antioquia. So Antioquia is very famous in Colombia for coffee, but internationally it's not known for specialty in the way that, say, Tolima and Lila yeah. are. Um, so historically, why is that? And what can we be telling our customers about Antioquia and the coffees from Antioquia? Yeah, so Antioquia is one of the biggest coffee producer uh, states in, in Colombia, and that's also been one of the reasons why it's been so hard to do specialty, because all, it's always been focused a lot on volume. So the, the structure in Antioquia is much more focused on volume than in, in specialty. But we have the altitude. We, as a state, we were a state that was one of the first ones to change from Caturra to Parida Colombia and then to Castillo, which are varieties that are they not necessarily can't it's not that they can't produce high quality coffee but they produce less than uh caturras and more traditional varieties uh varia colombia and castillo are varieties that have been developed in order to be resistant to rust which is one of the major 
uh, diseases that affect coffee. It's a, it's, a, it's, a cough, it's a leaf rust, which is a fungus that attacks the tree and defoliates the tree and basically ends up killing it. So um, we had massive ro ro roya attacks, uh, coffee ro rust attacks back in the 80s, and a lot of that variety was changed for Cascadia and Colombia, which don't tend to produce that great amount of coffee, but it's more the institutions in Antioquia that are more developed for mass and commodity export, not specialty. But hopefully, you know, we've, we're, we're, we've been working very hard to change that in the region we work. And there's also one region that we love and that you guys have actually had, and we've uh, had some trouble working there because of security, but we're coming back this year, which is Rao. So Rao has won the Cup of Excellence twice, actually one with Leo's farm, that Leo uh, used to have a farm in, in Urao. Um, and the, they produce a variety called Chiroso, which was first discovered in, 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 in Urao. Um, it's a variety that's now been genetically analyzed and is traced back to Ethiopian land-raised varieties, but nobody knows why and how it got to Urao. Um, but it's an elongated bean. It's, uh, it's more similar to, to, to geisha than to katura um, and has a very particular profile. So that's starting to change bit by bit. Um, Urao is getting more recognition um, and hopefully other regions of Antioquia, but it's still the structure there is very based for, you know, to produce Medellin Excelso or Colombian Excelso coffee. So it's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to change. Um, have you seen much of a shift in the view that the younger generations take on coffee farming in the communities that you guys have been working in? Kind of like look, made a better kind of success story for a lot of the tree farmers? Yeah, it de specialty definitely creates, it's, it's not only an incentive about the price that gets paid for coffee, which is the most important part, but it's also uh, an idea of recognition for the work being done. So younger generations value a lot more having that recognition of, you know, saying, okay, your coffee special is different. Uh, not only we're going to pay better, but we're going to actually market it as the coffee from your farm and your family. That's starting to change a lot of the dynamics of how farmers look at their own farm. And I think for younger generations, much more connected to social media. So a lot of, you know, a farmer in INSA, the, the, the father or mother, will not even ever know that their coffee ends up in market lane unless we bring them back a bag of their coffee. But the younger generation is going to look at Instagram, it's probably going to follow market lane, it's going to see that, you know, you guys posted something about El Diamante, be like, oh my God, our, 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 so that sort of recognition starts becoming a source of pride. And that changes, you know, the dynamics of communities because they're not only getting more money for their coffee, but they're also getting the recognition that they feel that they, and I, we also feel that they deserve. So that's starting to change. Um, and you see younger people much more interested in, in, in coffee when, when it's looked from the specialty perspective. Um, so we, we are seeing, but again, specialty is a very small percentage of, of the coffee industry. And, and that's where we have a responsibility to keep fighting to grow that and to have a bigger impact. Um, I've forgotten the acronym, but the coffee sort of institution in Colombia, is it FNC? National Federation of Coffee Yeah, I'm Growers. sure this could be an hour-long talk in itself, but could yeah. you talk a little bit about that? Because we know that, for example, there's no such body in Bolivia, and that makes yeah. a difference. Um, yeah, it's, I'm going to try to be concise on that one, but the National Federation of Coffee Growers is um, it's a public-private public, public -private 
institution. So it's not necessarily a, like a, it's it's not necessarily a part of the government, but it it does use uh, governmental resources. So it's 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 almost like a governmental institution, but is financed primarily by um, what they call a contribution, which is really a tax. And every pound of coffee that Colombia exports, six cents of that goes to finance the FNC, the National Federation of Coffee Growers. Supposedly, that is mainly for technical assistance programs and research, which they do. And I think that there's part of it that is valuable in terms of the research that they do and some of the technical assistance that they do. But they're a massive bureaucracy. Massive. They have a lot of, a lot of very well paid and fancy buildings all across Colombia and actually in the world like their office in New York is super fancy and Paris is super fancy because they're supposedly the institution that represents Colombian coffee but they're they're the dichotomy between what they represent and the actual like the idea of Juan Valdez for example is something that is not true in many ways right it's 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 so it started from a noble cause because when they started in the 1930s, the way the coffee was commercialized was through these middlemen that took 50% of the price of coffee. And they started initially to try to, to export directly the coffee from, so basically like a big co-op started, right? But then they became a bureaucracy and they had too much control and they've, yeah, it, it gets complicated, but I think they've done a lot of good throughout the years and they definitely helped a lot to position coffee colombian coffee as a really good um best coffee of the world which is something that is very very complex to say if colombian coffee is the best coffee in the world especially in specialty but um but yeah right now they're just such a big bureaucracy and and they it's it's about 300 uh, 200 million dollars that they collect a year 250 like $250 million that they collect a year, I think that money would be a lot better spent in producers' pockets and not in the FNC. I think they could do almost the same with a lot less money. It's, it's, very, it's very complicated. And the FNC has a lot of power, a lot of power back home. Just to give you an idea, we weren't even allowed to export naturals by the FNC. Like the first time we exported naturals, we needed the... The, like a letter from our, our 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 buyer saying that you know they agreed to that and they have a lot of control but they, and they regulate us but at the same time they're they export a third of Colombian coffee so they're technically our competition because they're exporters and traders but they regulate us which doesn't make any sense and they have massive losses that they uh, anyway <laughs> can stay there forever um, we've probably got time for yeah one or Two more. Um, I, I had a question. Um, how do you, I don't know, measure success? Or like, do you have some success stories of producers? Um, I mean, for, for me, it was like going to a farm and seeing they had invested in the farm more than they absolutely needed to. You know, they, they seemed to have more money to spend. Um, yeah, how do you measure it yeah, yourself? It's, or? <laughs> it's funny because sometimes, in, sometimes when... With with some projects where some like some roasters ask us to have like these measurements of you know change right and obviously you know we we could start doing more data driven um, results but 
when you're going consistently to these communities, you don't need that data to see the change. It, like we were just talking with Rafa uh, about Insta, for example, where we work almost 10 years now. Year after year, you see the changes, right? You see farms that had um, dirt floors, for example, that now have like real, like beautiful ceramic floors, right? You see bathrooms that didn't exist before because there were these holes in the in the ground with latrines, and now they have functional bathrooms, which actually has a lot of you know huge impact on health. For example, you you entered kitchens that were had like open fire. Um, ovens for example that smoked the entire house and produced a bunch of health problems for the entire family especially for for women and children and now you see you know these you know very beautiful also wood ovens but they're closed they have a ventilation ventilation system so that sort of thing um doesn't need a lot of data to see it and when you see that and and a lot of the times it's not only the people that are selling microlabs that's why i say how important the blends are because they impact the entire community. You just start seeing more money in these communities and see them in being invested in, you know, the sort of thing that anybody would like to invest, right? You first invest in your family, you invest in your house, you invest in improving the, the your your structure for producing coffee and then eventually produce better coffee. So it's just um, we have the privilege of being able to visit these these communities um, consistently, and you just see that you see that change. You like. You would see in the first meetings that we would do, people walking for hours to get to the meeting. Now you see people on motorcycles getting to the to the to the meeting. Or you see, we were talking about a, this farmer in in Insta. She's a little bit of a larger. She has five hectares, and and and, and she produces some geisha and gotten some really good money for her geisha. She came up to the meeting in a new uh, pickup truck, and she was so proud of that. She didn't know how to drive. She her her kid was driving the pickup truck, but she was happy as hell to to bring her new lot in her pickup truck. And that's, you know, that's everybody's dream. Not, not that every, we all dream with a pickup truck, but you know, you dream with just having a normal, you know, successful business. So, um, yeah, you can you can put a lot of data into that. But yeah. when you're when you when you when you know the communities where you work, you don't need the data to to, to see the difference. Like you see them year after year. My question was mainly: we hear a lot of negative things about the future of coffee as far as commodity price dropping or young people being disillusioned, young farmers or global warming and the impacts. But I was wondering what uh, kind of a positive outlook for you would be and where you'd want to see the coffee industry in kind of the next 10, 20 years, 50 years. Yeah, I think, I mean, especially, I mean, that's a really broad question. So. Yeah, no, no, and but it's a very important one because I think I started the presentation a little bit too negative. <laughs> um, but it's important to to understand that harsh side of the of the industry because it's it's very real. But at the same time, the change that the industry has had in ten years is massive. Like a lot of us, you know, in the industry, we weren't here ten or twelve or thirteen years ago. And every you go, we walked around Melbourne today. I don't know, it was four or five hours and we visited, what, like six or seven amazing, you know, shops that were promoting, you know, coffees from specific areas and were doing an amazing job at doing a lot of drinks. We went to one that was like the fastest drink producer coffee shop we've ever been to, but a lot of great coffee coming out and you didn't see that thing. So I think that there's, you know, we're still very small as an industry, but we're definitely headed in the in the right direction in general. Um, and I think in 
and I think a lot of the bigger guys are also taking notice um, and realizing that you know these problems are real and that specialty has a real big uh, role to play. I don't think they realize it enough yet, <laughs> um, but I think I think definitely we're we're headed in the right direction. But I do think that it's not going to be the solution for the entire coffee industry. I think eventually the coffee industry will probably divide more and more into two extremes, into the extreme of very cheap coffee that is, you know, industrially produced um, and will, you know, not have amazing quality and will end up in, you know, instant coffees and dark roasts around the world. And then you're going to have a bigger and bigger um, specialty industry that probably won't be 1%, probably eventually be, you know, 5, 10, hopefully 20%, but it won't be, it, I don't think it can replace the entire industry as it is right now, but it's definitely going to be bigger. And um, and I think it's it's the it's as consumers start out, out also understanding the impact of of like of 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 what they're drinking and what that has into the communities. And that takes a long time, but you know if people are willing to spend ten dollars on a craft beer um, or fifteen dollars on a good cup of wine, I think eventually. You know, coffee is going to get more and more recognition. It's going to get priced correctly, um, and hopefully, eventually, we'll we'll create the incentives and the structure for more people to be able to be profitable at a farm level. But it's always going to be a minority. Um, I don't think it's going to be it's going to be able to replace the entire industry as we know it today. But um, maybe we don't have to. I don't know. It's just the, the world changes, and um, I don't know if we're going to have enough space to grow coffee the amount of coffee that we grow today if we you know if the weather keeps changing too so i don't know it's just it, the world has to adapt and we'll see where we are but there is there is some hope i think most of the people in the room tonight here um they work in our shops um and are sort of tasked with representing the the coffees that we serve you know day in day out as a producer and exporter i guess how can we help to build on that little bit of hope that is there that you just mentioned? How, how do we sort of, um, how do we best, you know, if you had one thing that, that we could walk away from today that we could communicate to the customers or really um, think about day in, day out when we're pulling those lattes or making those filters, what would that be? I think more than some specific thing that you can communicate or say, I think it's, and we talk a lot about it with our team is that it's easy in the day to day and the hustle of of and busyness of a cafe um you kind of forget the it was such an important place of the industry that you guys are located in because i I always tell like our team is like you are the last centimeter you know they're the last little mile before you know the 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 work of so many people behind you gets delivered to that final consumer. And sometimes we forget that because we're, you know, with a line, we have a customer that might not be that friendly, but we sometimes forget that importance. If we never forget it, if we always are conscious about that responsibility and the fact that we are that last, that last part of a huge bridge that connects two very distant wor worlds, you're always going to do that extra mile. And not only about making the perfect pour over, which is really important or the, or the, or the, or the, or the, or the best extraction in that espresso shot but it's that smile that 
hospitality, that connection that you generate with that final consumer, a lot of times is much more important than getting the perfect, you know, notes or processing right, right? Because, you know, the notes and the processing will matter for a lot of people, but the smile and the, the hospitality and the generosity matters for everybody. And that's what coffee is about more than notes or processing. It's about that connection. Like if you never forget that and you always strive to do that, you're going to have an impact no matter what behind the behind the be, behind you with all the people that are working towards that. Um, so we like I always tell people like our team is like we have to take coffee seriously, but not that seriously. Like we need to remember about the non-coffee stuff that affects that 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 um moment so much you know hospitality service friendliness closeliness remembering people's drink all that sort of stuff is as important sometimes we forget so just too long of an answer but um just never forget never take for granted the such an important place in the chain that you guys provide because it's the it's it's a, it's it's the last place where things can go wrong and the delivery can affect it. And it's not only coffee; it's the environment around uh, that's that's where coffee gets delivered. Thank you very much. Thank you for your oh. time. Thank you for flying all the way to Australia. <laughs> 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 it's our pleasure, and it's really it's just it's been amazing um, working with you guys for the past eight years, and we hope to work with you guys for a long time in the in the future. And um, yeah, thank you for representing, um, you know, the coffee that we work so hard to, to bring here so well. And, um, yeah, it's, that's the sort of thing that brings back hope to the industry. Like when you actually see the things work and, you know, coffee getting delivered in beautiful spaces and generosity and hospitality, that's where you say, okay, you know, if like if this can happen here, it can happen anywhere. And it's the way we should, you know, show people the, the way where it, it should go in the future. I think that's where the hope really lies. Um, <laughs> um, you only work with MCM in Australia, but what other coffee importers do you work with in the likes of Europe and stuff? Um, yeah, we work. We work in. Uh, the market that we work the most is uh, the uh, the U.S. Um, the U.S. We work with different importers and roasters. Um, in Europe, um, we work with an importer in the U.K. called Mercanta. Um, we also import in, into Hamburg to them, and we work with Ally Coffee in Hamburg as well. Um, so Europe, we work with Mercanta and Ally. Is that that was the question, right? Mer in in Europe or? Yeah, yeah. Because we're, we're from Europe, so when we go back, we just want to know where can we find I'll connect you with either Mercanta or Ali, yeah. depending on the country that you are, and we can definitely hook you up. Cool. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you. And for the United States, mainly roasters? Um, no, we work, um, we work with our importer in the East Coast called Royal New York. Mm -hmm. um, they work with a lot of uh, small and medium-sized roasters. Um, we work with some roasters directly. Um, uh, work with Atlantic, which is another import in the U.S. U.S. is a is a really big um, market, so uh, we work with quite a bit of people there. Right. Um. Thank you very much again. Um. You're all welcome to hang around for a minute and you know chat if you like. Thank you for having. Thank me. you very much. Thank you.